All right, well, today we wrap up a four-week-long foray into the bad news uh, that leads us to the good news, which is, of course, the gospel. And today the bad news comes to a boil. Paul will show us that all humanity is in trouble before God. No doubt some here will be cut to the core. But remember that the book of Romans is about new life that God gives us in Christ. It's given to those who've been, well, cut to the core. God's desire this morning is to press out of our hearts any fickle or foolish notions that we may have concerning ourselves and concerning him so that we may start fresh. Thankfully, God is a God of fresh starts. Will you let him take you to a place where you truly long for a fresh start? Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in any way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the word of God, the, gra- the, the, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word, even this hard and difficult to decipher word that challenges us to the very depths of our souls. We know that um, doing so is a gift from you. You desire us to see ourselves rightly in your presence. 
And so we ask that you would be with us to show us, illumine our hearts, that we may fully understand uh, the magnitude of your love and your mercy and your grace towards us, we pray. Amen. In 1999, Excite.com was the number two search engine on the internet, a distant second behind Yahoo.com. That year, Larry Page, one of the co-founders of Google, met with George Bell, the CEO of Excite, and Page offered to sell him Google. In one of the greatest business blunders of all times, George Bell said no. The asking price? $750,000. In a later interview, Bell rationalized his decision by saying that the Google technology, though a little bit better, wasn't that much different. Excite was unable to see how internet search would be transformed by this new and innovative Google technology. Now, consider how things might have been different for Bell and therefore for Excite. What if Excite wasn't so focused on comparing itself to Yahoo? What if Excite could see the inevitability of its own demise? And trust me, it's there. I went to, when was the last time you went to Excite? I went to Excite.com last week, and it was deplorable. The website looked as if it was from the late 90s. Trust me on that. You, you can take your smartphones out and look for yourself. But that's the, it's, uh, the user experience is just so outdated. Now, what if Excite could see the inevitability of its own demise? What if they could, in humility, look deep inside and see uh, the limitations that they had, that they could see their flaws, that, that they could take sober inventory uh, of its guaranteed demise? I think something different might have taken place. I, th I think George Bell might have said, you know what, Larry? How about instead of us buying you, how about you take us in? We won't even charge you. Bring our whole team into what you're doing. We want to be a part of that. That would have been the most profitable thing they could have done. Now, you might not see it at first glance, but that's what's going on in our text. Paul is, is urging his readers to undergo a soul-searching, to see the inevitability of our own demise apart from Christ. Paul wants you to, to lift the needle from the record player of your life and, and reflect upon what God has to do. God will judge every human being for how we lived on earth. That's the point that Paul is making this morning, and he's going to finalize it today. He's been saying that no one is righteous in God's sight. All of us have turned away. No one is good enough. We are all guilty. Now, today, people don't really embrace this idea, do they? People deny that God will ever judge them. People shift blame and make excuses. We point fingers at others and say, well, if that person hadn't been in my life, things would be, my life wouldn't be in such chaos. Or if it wasn't for that group over there, things would be much better. Or if, or if, if, if uh, you know, if... If opportunities were afforded me that others had, well, then my circumstances would certainly be different. It's not my fault, we say. 
And we even point our fingers at God and blame him. Kind of like what Adam did in the garden after he sinned. Remember what he did? Remember he said? He's talking to God and God corners him. And he says, he goes, that woman that you gave me, she made me eat the fruit. And from then the, the blaming and the judging began. Voltaire illustrates our lack of self-reflection when he said, no snowflake in an avalanche ever feels responsible. God is up in heaven looking down on humanity, and what does he see? God looks down upon humanity, and he sees one snowflake after another, blaming the ills of the avalanche on another. In our passage, Paul tells us that there is a a day coming when God will hold in his hand the avalanche of humanity and he will pick apart each snowflake. And Paul says on that day, the blaming and uh, and the blame shifting will cease. Paul says that all mouths will be made silent. We see that in verse 19. Every mouth will be stopped creator will say, but you were part of the avalanche. Here's what God is doing today. God is speaking through Paul to us. He wants to shock us into a mental lucid state. He wants to shake us up. He wants to humble us. The Bible says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Our passage here is meant to bring us to a place of humility. Ray Ortland Jr., to to whom I'm indebted this morning, says, there's a choice here before us. Do you want God for your opponent or for your giver of grace? God must humble us if we're ever to desire his grace upon our lives. And for this to happen, there's an awareness that we must have. Paul points us that there's two things that we must be aware of in order for us to even begin to long for God's mercy and his grace. And we're going to look at those two things this morning. One is that we must have an acute awareness of God's righteousness. And then we must also have an acute awareness of our own unrighteousness. First, we must have an acute awareness of God's righteousness. Now, what am I getting at? Why is this important? Well... We live in an age where people say, well, I believe in God, um, but the God I believe in will never judge people, let alone condemn people. And so, so we put God on trial. What kind of God condemns people made in his image? But Paul corrects this thinking in verses 1 through, through 8 and 9. Um, Paul speaks to an imaginary, nominal Jewish man. And he says that God is right to judge everyone, even his own people. Who reject him. And you know, just as there were Jews in, in Paul's day who, who had an outward appearance of godliness, but there was no circumcision of heart, so too there are people today who consider themselves Christians simply because, well, they're born in a Christian country. And, and you know, Grandma Bessie is buried out back of some church somewhere. In, verse, in this first section, Paul poses question that that he must have regularly heard as he was sharing the gospel. You notice it's kind of like there's an interrogation going on here. He'll, we're going to run through these questions quickly, and then we'll, we'll explain what it's all about. First, questions in verse 1, if you look at them, they, they, 
they kind of flow from the passage last week. And it goes something like this, as if the guy is saying, um, so Paul, let me get this straight. Uh, you were saying in chapter 2 that Jewishness is of no advantage and that circumcision means nothing, and therefore, I guess, therefore, God's promises to the Israel and the whole Old Testament are, are worthless and that, that we can't even believe in God. Is that, isn't that what you're saying, Paul? In verse 2, Paul replies, no. Being Jewish, it's a great privilege. Take, for instance, that God spoke, has spoken to us. He has given us his oracles. We've been given the covenant promises of God. Then in verse 3, the imaginary opponent continues. Well, what if some are unfaithful, Paul? And, and, and you're right. Some Jews have been unfaithful. Some have failed God. But great is his faithfulness. <laughs> morning by morning, they're new every day. Right, Paul? God has pledged his people mercy. And God's faithfulness to his promises means that every Jew will be safe on that final day, doesn't it? I mean, Matt, because of our Jewish heritage, we've, we've got a safe ticket into heaven. Isn't that right? After all, God will not break his promises. He's faithful. To which Paul answers in verse 4, by no means. God will never break his promises. Every single one of us could fail, but in the end, God will do the right thing. And then Paul quotes Psalm 51, that you may be justified in your words. The word justified here means to be proved right. God will be proved right for judging all. Even when being proved right means that he will even judge some of his own people. To which Paul's imaginary foe cries, foul. Verse 5, he says, Now you've really done it, Paul. You've done yourself quite a hole. You're saying that our unrighteousness glorifies God um, because our sins make his righteousness more magnified. But if God is glorified then in our sins, and in, in the end, he's wrong to judge us or condemn us, right, Paul? Our sins really just put God's righteousness on display. What kind of message is that? <clears throat> Paul responds in verse 6. He, really, he kind of says, heck no. I don't know what the Greek word for that is, but uh, actually I do. Meaganeto. Those are the Greek words. Uh, heck no. Know this. God will judge the earth. But the man keeps pressing at Paul. In verse 7, he points out that he sees the danger in Paul's message. He says, if through my lies and untruthfulness, God's truthfulness abounds even more, then why does he call me a sinner? My sin makes God look better. <laughs> and so if our falsehood makes God look better, then we're really doing God a favor by sinning, are we not? Why not sin all the more so God's glory becomes all the more seen? Paul addresses this more in chapter 6. For now, he, he, doesn't, he, he doesn't even dignify the question by giving an answer. Because at the end, he, all he says is, their condemnation is just. In other words, Paul is saying, you don't get the gospel. He's saying, people who twist God into an excuse for sin, they deserve what they get. So, what's going on in these verses? The Jewish mindset in Paul's day was that it didn't matter how, how Jews lived, whether they're faithful or not. Um, God 
must be faithful to fulfill his promises towards the nation. And as God promised to bless his people and deliver them out of judgment, therefore every Jew who's got circumcision on the outside is is safe and secure. But then Paul shows us something we hadn't perhaps thought of before. God is perfectly faithful to fulfill all of his promises. Not one will be left unfulfilled. You can be certain of that. The problem is, God has promised his people both blessing and curses. God promised to bless his people when they walk in heartfelt love and faithful obedience. Surely the blessings will flow when God's people, out of love for God and a love for their neighbors, are a light unto the Gentiles. Blessings will flow to the people of God, but walk in hard-hearted obstinacy and curses will follow. God promised his people that. Let me ask you this. When God follows through on his promises to bless his people, what word should we use to describe this? Faithfulness. Let me ask you this. When God follows through on his promise to judge disobedient people, what word should we use to describe this? Faithfulness. God is faithful to bless and to curse. Even if everyone proves faithless, God has a right to judge. So the important thing for us to see from this this morning is, is we need to stop judging God. We need to stop shifting blame and simply be humbled before him. We're to find your, you're to find yourself at a place of seeking his mercy. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Do you believe that? Do you believe God gives grace to the humble? He does. This very passage that seems so ominous points to it. How do we know that? Well, well, who is he quoting here? In verse 4, he's quoting David from Psalm 51. Read that psalm. I was going to read it during the sermon here this morning, but there's no time for that. But look at it in your Bibles after the sermon or, or read it when you get home. What's going on in Psalm 51? Well, David, finally, finally, after such a long time of hiding and blaming others, David is finally confessing of his adultery with Bathsheba and of the murder of her husband, Uriah. David went to a place of repentance. He stopped shifting blame. He stopped making excuses. He brought himself into God's presence and he said, God, you are right to judge me. You have every right to cast me away. He says, your righteousness demands that you hold me accountable. And you are faithful when you do. And he cried out for mercy. And he cried out for a new heart. And he cried out for a spirit-filled life. It's my understanding he got it. Do you see God this way? Do you see that God is faithful and just and true? And do you see that because God is righteous and faithful, he must and will judge not only the world, but you too. So Paul shows us that we must have an acute awareness of God's righteousness. In the remaining verses, he shows us that we must also have an acute awareness of our unrighteousness.
You've sung the hymn Amazing Grace before, haven't you? Try to count up how many times. Who knows, right? There is a grandness to that hymn that strikes a chord with everybody, unbelievers included, right? When we sing that song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. There is a sweetness to the grace of God. But before we can truly sing Amazing Grace, we must also agree that we, like John Newton, who wrote the hymn, are wretches in need of mercy. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. John Newton was a wretch. He was a captain of a slave trading ship, and for at least a a decade, he sailed to Africa and filled his ship with human cargo. It took a violent storm that put his life in peril that caused him to cry out for God's mercy. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That moralistic Jew that Paul is confronting here, he would say, yeah, you're right, Paul. That John Newton, that Gentile, he's a wretch. He, he better come crawling to God, groveling for his mercy. But neither the moralistic Jew, nor the moralistic Christian, nor even the moralistic atheist would ever consider themselves just as wretched as John Newton. It isn't our tendency to do so. We look at the obvious wretches around us and point out their wretchedness. And then we feel pretty good about ourselves. We judge them from the island of our own innocence. If it wasn't for all those people, the world would be fine. It's not just me that thinks that way, right? You see that in your own heart? But God's grace isn't for the proud, the self-sufficient, the self-righteous. It's for wretched sinners. And in Paul's point in verses 9 through 20 is that we're all wretched sinners. Let's be honest. That's that's kind of the last thing we want to hear, isn't it? I did wear my black suit this morning. (laughs) Um, You know, is it not true that in our modern Western society, we're taught just the opposite? Ask any parent what the most important thing they can teach and train up in their child, and and most parents will respond, you know, self-esteem. Our kids need more self-esteem. And so we fill our kids full of the cheese whiz of their own perfection, so much so that they become full of themselves. We're inoculating an entire generation from sober self-reflection. We're creating a generation of fragile finger pointers. How so? How'd that happen? Well, it's because we ourselves are a generation of fragile finger pointers. (laughs) We've inoculated ourselves from sober self-reflection. We don't want to go where Paul is leading us in this passage. Remember a few weeks back I quoted from David Brooks's New York Times editorial, uh, the editorial, um, Let's All Feel Superior, uh, 2011, if you want to look it up. Uh, I quoted it at length. I'm just going to remind us a few things. He said, but we're not Puritans anymore. We live in a society oriented around 
our inner wonderfulness. So when something atrocious happens, people look for some artificial outside force that must have caused it, like the culture of college football or some other favorite bogey. People look for laws that could be changed so it never happens again. Commentators ruthlessly vilify all involved from their island of their own innocence. Everyone gets to proudly ask, how could they have let this happen? Paul confronts this mentality in our culture today. He says, no one is an island of their own innocence. Paul says that that every human being shares what, what we all share, which is unrighteousness. No one is the person we know we should be. This is a universal problem. Paul addresses this universal problem in in verse 9. What then, are the Jews any better off? You know, the thought was in Paul's day that Jews, of course, um, went to the head of the line. Uh, They they flew first class to heaven, right? Paul says no one has an advantage. He says at the end of verse 9, he says, For we have already charged, this is chapters 1 and 2, we've already charged that all, both Jew and Greek, are under sin. Paul makes this phenomenal claim. He says, we are all under sin. Surely Paul's misspoken. Surely he's going to temper his words with some sort of caveat, right? Surely there's some yet-to-be-disclosed subset of the human race that I can find myself and be safe. Paul gives no such comfort. Paul says there's a problem enjoined by all humanity and that we're all under sin. That's your problem, that's my problem. This is a problem that we share with every other human being that's ever been born. Except, of course, Christ. We're under sin, what does this mean? Well, theologians have a word for it, it's actually two words. Uh, It's called total depravity. (laughs) That doesn't make it sound any better, does it? (laughs) Total depravity. (laughs) The problem with humanities, we're totally depraved. Now, total depravity doesn't mean that human beings are always sinning to the worst degree we could possibly sin. That's not what it means. No human being is as sinful as possibly could be, right? And it's true. Even, even mass murderers, they love their mamas. And they're willing to sacrifice to help her, right? Just look at Jesse and Frank James. They're pretty good at that. No human being is as sinful as he could possibly be. Perhaps a better word, though, is pervasive depravity. Sin has pervaded every nook and cranny of humanity. The point is that no human being has been untouched by sin. When I say that, I'm not saying, oh yeah, well, others have sinned against me. No, no human being has been untouched by the sin within. Every human being has been tainted with sin. It's true, we, we, we know the right things to do most of the time. And sometimes we do them. Paul's not arguing that human beings can't do some things that are good, relatively good in society. That shouldn't surprise us. We are, we're made in God's image and that has fallen at the fall, but there's still remnants of the glory of God in each and every human being. So we shouldn't be surprised when people don't even believe in God do some good things. But Paul's point is that is, is we often know the good we 
know we should do, and we don't do it. Why is that? It's not because of somebody else. It's something within us. Sin has pervaded human nature. It's pervasive. We are by nature. We are by nature sinners. I know that's not popular in today's culture. Now, it's important to understand the following distinction. Human beings aren't sinners because we have sinned. No, we sin because we're sinners. It's our nature to do that. Why do dogs bark? It's in their nature. Because a dog has barked doesn't make a, because you hear barking doesn't all of a sudden make that animal a dog. No, a dog barks because it's his nature. We cannot help but sin. It comes naturally to us. We're all under sin. Paul proves his point in verses 10 through 18. He gives us three structured collections from the Old Testament that he quotes to support this claim. The first collection is in verses 10 through 12, and it highlights this universal condition that we share. Paul quotes from Psalm 14, and I encourage you to read Psalm 14, because in quoting it, Paul is really trying to unfold the rest of the psalm. But here's what we see. Paul is saying that is that none is righteous. No one. No one understands righteousness. No one seeks God righteously. That's in a right way. Add to that, we've all turned aside from righteousness. All have become worthless regarding our righteousness. No one does righteousness, not even one. I mean, at least that came across, right? No one, no one, no one, no one. All have, all have, all have, right? Universality. Okay, somebody say that right for me. Um, The second collection speaks of the effects of sin upon our attitudes and words. These are quotes from Psalm 5, Psalm 140, and Psalm 10. And here Paul begins giving us an anatomy of sin. Do you see that with the words he uses? Uh, He quotes Psalm 5. It says that our throats are open graves. Not a pretty sight or smell, is it? And from the death within comes, comes a venom that forms on our lips. You've experienced this before, haven't you? You become irate at somebody. The death in your throat produces a venom in your mouth. And then a bitterness of curses flows. As if it has a mind of its own. Where did that come from? As Christopher Ashe comments, what we see is that rotten hearts speak with bitter tongues. And why do we all experience this? Because we're all under sin. In the last section, verses 15 through 18, we see that rotten hearts and bitter tongues take over the rest of the body and it controls our actions. This is a quote, these are quotes from Psalm uh, 36 and Isaiah 59. And what we see here is the effects of sin um, is that it destroys community. There's a bitterness between man and man. We begin to harbor envy in our hearts. And so we gossip maliciously with our tongues. And then we set our feet in motion, you see that? And we begin to follow paths of ruin. We purposely chase people down to give them a piece of our mind. All right, maybe you do it on some social media. It's a lot easier there. Or we purposely avoid people 
So we can persist in our feelings of superiority or victimhood or both. And it all goes to prove verse 18, which is from Psalm 36. There is no fear of God before their eyes. When you suppress the truth that God exists, when you suppress the truth that all will be accountable before God, when you suppress suppress the truth that all of humanity is under sin, then there will be no fear of accountability before God. That's the problem that exists for humanity. Like it or not, we're all under sin. And yet, we have no fear of being accountable before our Creator someday. Now, that's our problem. How about a solution? How about a remedy? Before we get there, I need to, I need to cut you off at the, at the pass. But before you go the wrong direction. What do we typically do? What do people typically do? If you point out to someone the sin in their life, what do they typically do? They, they, they redouble their efforts. They say, well, I'll be a better person. Just, just let me see what I need to do, and then I'll make up for it. People think that that's what Christianity is. It, Christianity is all about convincing people that they're sinners, and then welcoming them to this nice holy huddle of religious rules and regulations, and that you affirm the rules, and then you go out and do them, and then God's going to pat you on the back. That's not Christianity. That's not the gospel. But that's what we tend to do. We tend to redouble our efforts. We tend to pick up the law of God and start using it so we can change ourselves into the people we know we should be. But understand this. Doing that is a way of avoiding God. Doing that is a way of of saying, I'm not going to come into your presence. I'm just going to fix myself in the moment. Paul says none of that will do anything for you. In verses 19 through 20, it says it's not going to do you any good. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law of God speaks to us, and it certainly is helpful. Don't don't get me wrong, the law of God is good, but it does not save you. As verse 20 states, no human being will be justified, that is, declared righteous in God's sight, by picking up the law and trying to live it out. Instead, Paul says something. He says that through the law, our knowledge of sin comes about. See, God is so good and gracious to us. He gives us his law. Why? So that we can hold our broken, needy, frail lives and our record of some good things, but a lot of not so good things, and hold it up against the the backdrop of his perfect, beautiful law. And it's to have an effect upon us. It's supposed to drive us to humility and to repentance, to see that even on our best day we fall short. And we need God to be merciful for us. Paul says that the law causes us to shut up our mouths when we stand in God's presence. See, the law doesn't heal us, but it does give us our diagnosis. A diagnosis that should cause us to turn to the one who can heal us. The fact that we have the law of God is a sign that God is on the move to you, towards you. It's a sign of his grace. He wants to do a work in your life 
He wants you to have a sober reflection upon him and who you are. He wants to lead you to his love and care and mercy. Do you see God drawing you near? If you're experiencing this for the first time, then God is on the move in your life. He is removing your heart of stone and he's given you a heart of flesh that can finally think thoughts after God and pursue God in true righteousness. And I believe this is what's going on in your life. He is moving you towards a destination you don't even believe exists. His world of grace. You don't know it now, but when you're humbled in his presence and cry out for mercy, that is where he will take you. God will not take you to his law. He will take you to his grace. And that's where we need to be. See, man's remedy is to to run to the law and try to earn our way back. God's remedy is grace. Apart from Christ, we're all what? Paul said it. Maybe underline it in your text. He says we're, we're both under sin. Do you see that? And we're under the law. This is your life apart from Christ. Under sin, under the law. But what will God do for those who come to the awareness of God's righteousness and their unrighteousness? What will God do for those who cease with the blame shifting and cease pointing their fingers at God and instead beat their chest and cry out for mercy? What will God do? God will take you and cleanse you in Christ. He will make you a new person in Christ. He will take out that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh that beats for him. And then what will he do? He will place you under his grace. How do we know this? Well, in a few chapters, Paul will reveal the wonderful reality of the gospel. You can turn there if you want. Romans chapter 6, verse 14. Romans chapter 6, 14. If you don't want to turn, here's what it says. Check this out. It's totally related to this passage. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law, but under grace. You're not under sin. It will no longer have dominion over you. You've been set free to to run in the paths that God has called out for you. And your heart will now fully want to do that, where it never has wanted to before. Sin will no longer have dominion over you. You will not be under sin any longer. And nor will you be under the law, but under grace. This is where Paul is leading us. But to get there, my friend, we need to see our condition. We are snowflakes in an avalanche. (laughs) And one day God's going to take that that avalanche and inspect it, each and every one of us. And you'll find on that day your mouth is silenced and you'll either still be under sin and under the law or with God's people you'll rejoice. Because why? You've been placed under grace. And therefore there's no condemnation for you. Christ has taken upon himself on the cross all of your sins, nailed them there. He's taken your sins and he's given you what? His righteousness. Christian, this is who you are in Christ. You you are under grace. Perhaps 
Some of you here need to trust in Christ for the first time. Today you stand at a crossroads. You have a choice before you. And it's your choice. Will you choose blessing or will you choose cursing? The choice is yours to make. Will you persist in blaming all the other snowflakes in the avalanche? Will you persist in blaming and judging God? Or will you be humbled before him? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God stands ready to save and deliver you. It's not because of God's reluctance that you fail to receive his mercy. Will you humble yourself that he may lift you up in his grace? Most of us here, though, we've done that. It's good to be reminded, though, isn't it? The extent to which God has shown us his love. God has opened our eyes to his glorious righteousness. He has opened our eyes to the enormity of our need. And he has given us new hearts and new spirits that cause us to cry out for mercy and grace. Christian, may you not lose track of the reality that you are no longer under sin and no longer under the law, but you are under God's grace. This is reality for you today. And this is the reality for you tomorrow. And this is the reality for you each and every day for all eternity. Now, how does that transform us? I'll leave that for you to ponder. (laughs) Something God has to say to you for your own heart that I can't speak towards. And you know, even though sin presses in on our lives each and every day, And yes, there's times we give in to temptation. We need to be reminded that we have a merciful high priest, one who stands in heaven and intercedes for us, Christ our Savior. Because of him, we stand in grace and we we live in grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this really is true. It seems... uh, alien at times. Even those of us who've been walking with Christ for a long time, we've, we've kind of grown numb to your glorious beauty and righteousness and holiness. And we find ourselves going back to where we know we shouldn't go. Thank you that you speak to us, that you have spoken to us this morning. Thank you for reminding us of the great work you've done May we honor you today and each day forward as your children. Amen.